Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at today a passage of Scripture written by the Apostle Paul. And it's going to take us a few minutes to get there, but we'll get there in due time. Uh, I was reading this week about a study that was done um, a, a little while ago, a couple of years ago, uh, by a computer science professor and a Google engineer. Now, I know that already gets you really excited when you hear that. But what they did is they took big data and they created an algorithm and they worked through it and they put it in and they let it run, kind of like Google does to rank websites. And what they did is they ranked people according to their influence, according to their significance, according to whether or not they were famous and significant. And they came up with a list of the hundred most significant people today. Now, obviously, that would have to be related to the history of what they were doing, but it is what they are today as well. So, for instance, uh, on their list, uh, this guy, um, y'all know him, right? Abraham Lincoln. He came in fifth on the list, which is pretty good, pretty high. It's the top American on the list is Abraham Lincoln. Um, this guy, uh, you may recognize him. Uh, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was 19th on the list. You can see, kind of judge your bearings. Okay. Another uh, U.S. president, John F. Kennedy, was a little farther down the list, and he was number 71. Now, I'm not going to reveal the next one for you uh, right away. I'm going to show you the picture. You go ahead and show the picture, Josh. Um, this guy right here. Anybody know who that is? Now, I just want to I just want to commend you all because in the first service I had cat calls. Not not lying there. I had cat calls when his picture went up on the screen. People who it was the most reaction I've had in first service in years. All right. So, I mean, I understand I'm an Elvis fan, too. But let me before we put the number up there, what do you think? So you saw that Lincoln was five. Einstein was 19. JFK was 71. Where, where do you think on the list of, you know, of so many hundred thousand? Where do you think Elvis kind of lands in the midst of that? All right. Some of you think way too highly of Elvis, all right? He is 69, all right? He is right in between William the Conqueror and Socrates, which when I think of Elvis, that's what I think is Socrates, all right? And then we have this guy right here. He's on the list. You <laughs> may want to guess where he is. He is actually number 8,633, all right? So, I mean, I... So I don't know that that required applause, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry, believers. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I'm praying for Justin. He seems to have turned his life around, living for Jesus. Amen. Bieber. All right. Which leads us to the name that we have been singing about. Now, obviously, we don't have a picture of Jesus because he lived a little bit longer than those other guys did ago. Anybody want to guess where Jesus was on the list when they did it scientifically, computer ranking? He's number one. That's awesome, right? But I want you to think about this, okay? <laughs> like, he, Listen, these aren't guys that are trying to skew the results. This is a uh, computer science professor and a Google engineer. I don't know if you know this or not. Google's not the most Christian-friendly company out there, all right? These are not guys trying to skew the results. And this is, and they said, the remarkable thing is, that a guy that lived 2,000 years ago is still the most popular person on the Internet. It's an amazing thing, especially when you think historically that shouldn't be the case. I mean, one 
um, pastor wrote this, and I thought it was really good to think about this. He said, here is a man, Jesus, who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village because he got run out of one village. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30, and then for three years he walked around preaching. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. And while he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, the executioners gambled for his clothing. And when he died, he didn't even have a place to be buried. And so he was buried in a borrowed grave. And yet, somehow, that man is the centerpiece of all human history. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind as powerfully as this single life. And so the question that I ask and the question that I began to think through this week is, What's different about Jesus? Because there are lots of things about Jesus that aren't different from the rest of the world and don't make sense for the fact that he would be this popular today. I mean, it cannot be just that he was a good man. We know good people. You know good people. I know good people. We know people that are good, people that do the right thing most of the time, people that we would say are the salt of the earth, that we knew growing up, like, man, that's a guy you can trust. His word is his bond. He's a good man. He's a, she's a good woman. It cannot be just that he was a good teacher. There have been lots of good teachers. I had great teachers in school. There have been great moral philosophers, great moral teachers, but they aren't number one on the list of the most popular, most significant people in the history of the world. It cannot be just that he was crucified. There were thousands of people in the Roman Empire crucified, many Jews crucified. There were two other gods crucified with him on the same day. It cannot be that he claimed to be something significant like the Messiah because in that day and time, there were many who were claiming to be the Messiah. The only explanation for the popularity of Jesus is the claim, and I believe the reality of the claim, of what we celebrate on resurrection morning. That Jesus did not stay dead. If Jesus stayed dead, then guess what? All that other stuff doesn't matter. He's just another guy that was a misunderstood speaker and got caught with the wrong crowd and said the wrong things to people in power and ended up dying for it. But if Jesus came back from the grave, it changes absolutely everything. If it's true, it changes everything. And what I love about Easter is that it gives us an opportunity as believers. I'm a believer in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It gives me an opportunity to step back and to say, is this true? And if it's true, it reaffirms my faith. It reaffirms my future. It reaffirms my security. It reaffirms my purpose in life. I love Easter because it gives some of you in this room that are on that borderline of thinking about stepping across the line into faith an opportunity to make that decision. There's no better time than Easter to say, you know what, I've been thinking about it, I've been talking about it, I've been wondering about it, but I believe and I want to follow Jesus with my life. 
I love Easter because even those that are closed off to Jesus can be changed by the power of the gospel. And that may be you today. You may be here and you've got both feet on the brakes and you're here today because you didn't want to have the dinner conversation with mother or mother-in-law if you didn't show up at Easter services. Like, I'm just, I'm here because I got to be here. But this whole Jesus stuff, that's for another time and another place. And that is not relevant to me. What I love about Easter is that people can absolutely change. Now, people can change in all kinds of ways. I, I was, it was illustrated to me even this week. Now, if you hadn't been around a little bit, you're new. This may not be as kind of significant to you. But those of you that have been around for a little while, um, I've been pastor here for 11 and a half years. And in that 11 and a half years, I have, um, I have declared the glory of one particular item against all of its competitors. I am a fan of Bluebell ice cream. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? All right, I, I see that hand, Maddie Larson. She agrees with me, all right? And so I'm a fan of Bluebell ice cream. Now, I have a history with Bluebell. I, I, uh, I lived in Texas for a few years uh, when I was in school and seminary. Bluebell comes from, that's where it started, it was in Texas. Uh, when I was doing youth camp, when I was traveling doing sports camps, I went and uh, um, went to do a sports camp, and one of the churches that came was First Baptist Brenham, Texas. I don't know if you know this or not, Bluebell, its origins is Brenham, Texas. Their church found out somehow all of our favorite ice cream flavors and brought us individualized, personal ice cream that week. So I have this tradition with Bluebell ice cream. It is amazing. But here's something you also probably know about Bluebell. It is expensive. Like, it costs some money. And I don't buy Bluebell for the family usually unless it's on sale. And so I am willing to eat other ice cream because of the cost factor. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking through Publix, and uh, the Bluebell, uh, I noticed, first of all, I got a little concerned, because um, if you've been in Publix lately, this is a little heartbreaking, but the Bluebell section has gone from a, a whole shelf to, like, one part. They're taking Bluebell out. And beside it was this competitor, but it was on sale, so I ate it. Took, not in the store, obviously. I bought it, and then I took it home. That would have been... Not that I wasn't tempted at times. That would have not been good. And so I took it home. We ate it. Now, I don't know if you've seen this brand. The, the cheeses started infiltrating Publix a little while ago. It's Tillamook. I'm probably not even saying that right. Anybody know Tillamook? Anybody, anybody had Tillamook ice cream? Um, it's better than Bluebell. I mean, man, that hurts me to say. Like Eli, our ice cream connoisseur, was the first one to say it. He was like, I, I like that better than Bluebell. And I was like, oh, what? No. And then I took a bite, and it's creamier, and it doesn't make any sense. It's made in Oregon. Like, I like Texas ice cream. I don't like Oregon ice cream, right? Like, I have personal, like, and I find myself at this conflicted point, and I've changed. It's okay to admit it. I'm okay to admit it. I'm a Tillok, Tillok, Tillok. I like that ice cream, whatever it is. People change. Now, people also change in more significant ways than the kind of ice cream they like. And in Romans chapter 6, we have the writings of a man whose life changed drastically. At one point in his life, this man, Paul, was the greatest enemy of the church. That's not an overstatement. That's not trying to be, you know, uh, 
flashy on Easter Sunday morning, that's reality. He was the one leading the charge to persecute the church, to kill Christians. When Stephen is martyred, the first martyr recorded in Scripture after Jesus died, the first one, it says Paul was there, Saul was there, his name was Saul, giving full approval to the execution. And in chapter 6 of Romans, he starts to tell us how his life changed and what the result of that change has been. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, Now, I've taught you, if you've been around here, that whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? What was coming before it? And what we already have in the book of Romans is Paul telling us that the reason his life changed is because he was encountered by the living Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And he tells us that the resurrection made all the difference for him. For instance, in Romans 1.4, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. He says, I learned that Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus is the one that He declared Himself to be. And he tells us in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That Jesus' death worked. And so when he says, therefore, he is telling us that everything he's believed has been changed because of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Paul's life would be changed to the point that he would, be, um, he would lose his fame, he would lose his prestige, he would lose his power, he would lose the promise of who he could have been in the Jewish law. He essentially gave up everything for the cause of Jesus, eventually giving up his life, beheaded in Rome. In fact, if you want to know one of the most um, obvious testimonies to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Because let's just be honest. What we're talking about here is unbelievable if it's just told to you without evidence. And that is that Jesus rose again from the grave. There are lots of evidences. There's lots of things that show us that it truly happened, that it's a historical fact. But one of the things is that every single follower of his that remained after that, the disciples, the apostles, and Paul who came on later, all died or suffered significant injury because of their association with Jesus. And not a single one of them ever said we were wrong. Charles Colson, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's one of the fixers in the Watergate scandal with Nixon. And he was talking about the reality of understanding the resurrection and understanding that it was real. And he said, I realized it was real when not a single one of those guys cracked when they went to their death for the cause of Jesus. He said, I was a part of a conspiracy and everybody on there cracked when the feds walked up to their door. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was pierced through by four spears at the same time. James was stoned and then to finish off clubbed to death. Matthias was was killed by burning. And John, the only one that didn't get martyred, that's because they tried to and it didn't work. I've told you this before. He survived being boiled alive in oil. When they couldn't kill him, they sent him to an island to exile him. Paul, writing here in chapter 6, says, Therefore, from everything we know, based on all that we know, we were, those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, those that believe in Him, buried with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For we've been united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of of his resurrection. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are a couple of concepts in there. And listen, I know the book of Romans gets deep fast. It's like getting thrown into the deep end of a pool without knowing how to swim. I know that it gets deep fast. There are a couple of things in there I want to point out. And then I want to talk about what that means for us. The first thing in there is it talks a lot about dying to sin, that we are in Jesus' death. And what it means is that when he died on the cross, and listen to this, when he died on the cross, what it means is that when his death happened, we died with him on that cross. The way that it is constructed in that original language, what it means is that that death happened then, that our death happened then, that for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, our sin was crucified on that cross with Jesus. It has already happened. It is in the past. It is no longer a part of us it is there that doesn't mean that the struggle of sin doesn't still happen in our lives what it means is we have been forgiven of it it is done and that right now he is in the process of destroying the rain that sins out on our life but then it also talks about in there that we have been united with him and that's where it gets good when it says that we've been united with jesus what it means is we get to have the benefits of everything he has. Because he has been raised from the dead, we get to be raised from the dead. Because he lives in the power of the resurrection, we get to live in the power of the resurrection. Just listen to what the Bible says we have been done, united with him. We have been crucified with him, means our sins are taken care of. We have died with him, means that we don't have to experience death like he did. We have been buried with him, that means that we have had all of our sin taken down there. We have been made alive with him, we have been resurrected with him, we have been raised with him. We are co-heirs with him, that means we get to enjoy heaven with him. We are sharers of his glory, that doesn't make any sense to me, how we can be a part of the glory of Jesus, and we will reign with him forevermore, all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes absolutely everything. According to Paul, the resurrection is not just a fact of history past. It is power for today. You see, the gospel is a new reality. It's not some new philosophy to live by and put alongside other stuff. It's not a set of new moral regulations. It's not a set of new resolutions to do better. It is the infusion of resurrection power into our lives. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. There are lots of Christians out there that live as if the Christian life is just believing in certain things from the Bible or just behaving in a certain way or just trying to be a decent person. But the gospel is about raw, life-changing, heart-starting power, the power to heal, the power to forgive, the power to transform, the power to live our lives in a new way for the glory of God. It's not just a set of new rules. Jesus didn't die on the cross and get raised again to give you another set of rules to live by. It's a tomb that is empty because a man came back from the grave. And because of that, it changes everything. 
Guilt has been defeated. Injustice has been defeated. Addictions have been defeated. Sorrow has been defeated. Despair has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Because of what happened on the cross and the resurrection, you don't have to pay the full penalty of your sin because Jesus has done that for you. And for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. Injustice doesn't have the last word in our lives. Yes, we live in a world where there are unfair things all the time. I don't know if you've seen the news from Sri Lanka that's happening this morning where over 200 people have been killed and coordinated attacks apparently on tourists and Christians on Easter Sunday morning. It seems like every year on Easter somewhere in the world, churches are attacked. And we look at that and say, how can that be? And the resurrection shows us that God is going to overturn all the bad things. Redeem us into a world where all wrongs are righted and he heals us for all eternity. Because of the power of the resurrection, your addictions don't have to have the last word in your life. In the resurrection, God released a power that can renew all that sin has destroyed. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe your family's messed up. Maybe your marriage is messed up. Maybe your business is messed up. Maybe your life is messed up. The resurrection means that if you ask him, he can make all things new. I'm not saying it's quick and easy. I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately. I'm not going to say that you can snap your fingers and like a genie, it is there. You may struggle the rest of your life. But the resurrection proves that one day there will be ultimate healing. And we can live today because that's coming. Because of the resurrection, sorrow doesn't have the last word. Life seems to be one of those things where everything around us falls apart. Our friendships, our families, our relationships, our jobs, our bodies, they, everything falls apart. That is going into a state of chaos. Maybe you, like we have in our family, have had people and watched loved ones struggle with something like Alzheimer's or cancer where they deteriorate rapidly, more rapidly than you can ever imagine. You see their mind or their body waste away. You look at that and you can imagine, I can't imagine, the despair that would be there if I did not have the hope of the resurrection that all those things would be made right. Pain doesn't have the last word. Through Christ, you're being redeemed to a place where there is no more crying, where there is no more death, where there is no more sin. In fact, the empty tomb means that death doesn't have the last word in our lives. Billy Graham, who died within the last couple of years, used to put up this quote, or used to say this quote all the time. He used to say, One day you will hear that Billy Graham is dead, Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than ever. I will have just changed addresses. Resurrection means that death is not the end. So here's my question to you. Have you experienced the power of the resurrection in your life? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you've been a part of a church. I'm not asking if you've done good things. I'm not asking if you've read the Bible. I'm not asking if you've said prayers. I'm not asking if you've done spiritual stuff. I'm not asking if you've decided, man, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more spiritual or I'm going to get back into church. I'm asking, has the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted your life? Have you accepted the forgiveness of sins that comes through the cross and the power of the resurrection? Have you been born again? Have you received Jesus Christ into your life? It's a gift, but you have to receive it. 
You can't do anything to earn it. You can't work your way towards it. In fact, the difference between Christianity and almost every other religion out there, in fact, every religion that I know, is that every other religion tells you how to do enough stuff to get to the place where God likes you. Christianity says God already likes you, and because of what he's done for us, we want to live in a way that honors him. You don't have to earn God's love. The gospel is clear, though, without Jesus, without the salvation that is freely offered to you, without the gift that is offered to you, without that, you are condemned for eternity because of your sin. Scripture tells us that we've all sinned. And listen, if you knew my sin and if I knew your sin, it would be far worse than either one of us could imagine. And Scripture says that what we deserve because of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Trusting Jesus means you stop trying to earn your way to salvation. By being good enough, going to church enough, receiving offer. It also means that if you have run far away from him, that he is available to save you without you having to do anything. Have you received, have you experienced the power of the resurrection in your life? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of of response. And I'm going to stand right down here. I'm going to pray in just a moment. After that, the band's going to come and lead us in a time of worship. And this invitation this morning is really open. It's open to you for a couple of things. First of all, if you're here today and you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but man, maybe you've just kind of gotten off track a little bit or you've gotten, you haven't been quite where you need to be and you say today's a day. I'm not trying to try harder. I'm not going to do better. What I'm going to do is just trust in the power that Jesus provides through his resurrection. I'm going to live for him. Maybe you're here today and you're one of those people that was close to the line. You were thinking about it. You've been contemplating it. You've been asking questions about it. And today's the day that you want to say, today is the day that I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. I'd love to talk to you down front. Or maybe you're one of those people that came in with your heels dug in, both feet on the brakes, and you say, I don't know that I'm ready yet, or maybe I am, but I am at least want to think about it. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you this morning. Would you pray with me?